If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians. You'll find that Galatians, Ephesians, just before Ephesians, there in the New Testament. Galatians uh, chapter 5, verse 16 through 25. For all of you who have been around for a while, uh, you certainly know uh, that our normal direction in preaching uh, is simply to work through a particular book of the Bible. We believe that this is the best way to preach the whole counsel of God's Word. We've sought to do that. That's why we do what we do. And then occasionally along the way, you'll see us do what we call series. It's not a common thing for us, but there's some times that we pause and we do that. And most often, we find a text that we believe that needs uh, to be expounded upon in depth, and we will work through that text for uh, an extended period of time. And then occasionally, we'll find a text that will kind of be a grounding for us And then we will reach out and look at other texts that speak to the very thing that this text does. Over the course of the next nine weeks, it's going to kind of be a a combination of those because while we will spend the majority of our time in Galatians, we are not doing a verse-by-verse or chapter-by-chapter exposition of Galatians. But Galatians is going to be our primary Uh, text. And today uh, and each week we will read Galatians chapter 5 verses 16 through 25 because it is out of that and our theme over the course of the next nine weeks uh, that uh, will drive our thinking and our our preaching. For the past three weeks uh, we have concentrated uh, on why Oak Valley Church exists. Uh, I hope you've been able to Uh, be a part of those, at least if not in person here, that you've been able to catch them online. If they're online, if not, they will be, and you'll be able to uh You'll be able to hear what was said there and listen to uh, those messages, and we hope you do because we're part of a church family and those were important and specific to us for our purposes. But you know, we've summarized our purpose of existence in three simple statements. We exist to love God supremely, to love others sacrificially, and to live in the world distinctively. And I was thinking about it even as we were leading into this series. When someone asks me, why do I exist? That is exactly what I say. Because that's not just a corporate thing, that is a personal thing. And I don't know if you've ever thought about why you exist. If you haven't, I want to encourage you to do that. And you should put some words to that so that you can communicate that. Uh, Your verbiage may be different, but I dare say that if you believe that you exist according to God's will and by God's will and providence, and you trust in Him, your verbiage may be different, but your points will at least include those three things. Loving God, loving others, and living in the world distinctively. So I want to encourage you uh, to give attention to that. And we looked at Colossians and Paul's letter to the church at Colossae uh, to help us reinforce that, to see that, and hear how he spoke of that even to the Colossians. Um, kind of give you a little bit of behind the scene kind of stuff, okay? Um, We don't decide from week to week or from kind of month to month what we are going to preach and how we are going to work through text. So it was decided upon in early 2020 that we would do what we did in Colossians the last three weeks and everything else we've done, by the way, and even into 2022. I'm only mentioning that because I want you to know that we pray and work through where we are going and there is a specific purpose for why we deal with a particular book or a particular subject when we deal with it in relation to other things that we're dealing with. And I'm just telling you that, that we plan that far in advance. But when we were planning and looking at where we would be the last three weeks, it just seemed right for us to press 
a little bit deeper into this issue of living distinctively uh, in the world. Um, if you're looking for a series title, uh, it could be Reflect the Glory of God in a Fallen World. That's what we're going to be talking about over the course of the next uh, nine weeks, and you may want to jot that down. I want us to begin by looking at this text, Galatians 5, 16 through 25, if you will follow along as I read. But I say, and this is Paul, okay? But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I, I want you to notice in the very beginning that Paul, in writing to this church and to the churches of this area, he references the Spirit in just that text alone. He references the Spirit five times. In just these few verses, and I want you to make note of these because for the next nine weeks, we will revisit this text each week, and these statements will be revisited each week. Paul writes, walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, live by the Spirit, and keep in step with the Spirit. You may want to underline those in your copies of Scripture I have in mind. You'll notice that three of the five are clear commands for believers, with the strong emphasis, of course, being placed on the Spirit. He says to walk by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, and to keep in step with the Spirit. All of those are clear commands. One of the references in the case of if you are led by the Spirit, while it's not an imperative, uh, it is passive in nature, but it is a type of if-then statement. In other words, if you are led by the Spirit, then you are not under the law. It's kind of if-then. That's going to become important over the course of the next weeks as we begin to try to flesh this out. And then there is the fruit of the Spirit, which at least initially seems more descriptive of the Spirit, and it is, but it is not limited to that because we see that list of the fruit of the Spirit compared to what? The works of the flesh. So we have a listing of the works of the flesh, and they are compared then over against the fruit of the Spirit. Why are these statements important? Well, that's what we want to deal with over the course of the next nine weeks. We want to give attention to this as we press into how, why, how is it able, how is it possible for us, and I'm talking about the redeemed, okay, those who have trusted Christ, how we reflect the glory of God. Because when we are talking about living distinctively in the world, that is exactly what we're talking about. Because we already see that the things of the flesh are in opposition to, as Paul said, to the things of 
the Spirit. Now here's my aim today. I want us to give attention to, and I'm just going to, just three, three foundations or the found, three components of a foundation because a, a building only has one foundation. If it has three foundations, then it's three different buildings, at least in some way. But there's a foundation for what is being built. So we're going to look at the components of the foundation for reflecting the glory of God. Now, I want to reach back into last week. Uh, for those of you who follow Oak Valley uh, on Instagram, you will know that Lori, our media director, uh, posted a, a really good-looking picture of Booney. Uh, that's about as good as he's going to get in that, in that picture. But she also posted a statement. Now, there was something else she was going to post, but uh, she, she, she was wise in not doing that. But the statement that was posted was a quote that he made. And that quote is, We are distinct in the world because we are alive in Christ. Now, I want you to know that's a statement is pregnant. And that is what we want to begin to give attention to. So our aim, again, is just what are the components of the foundation for reflecting the glory of God? So if you want a sermon title, there you go. The foundation for reflecting uh, the glory of God. We probably, at least in the course of the last three years, in our corporate gatherings alone, at least two dozen times, and I'm just guessing, we have referenced the first statement of the Westminster Catechism. Anybody want to take a, take a guess at what that is? There's a small enough group. What is, what is the first question? What is the chief end of man? That's the very first question of that catechism. And the answer is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Let's, let, let's just let's say that together question and answer and this will help us begin to learn about catechetical teaching let's say it together what is the chief end of man the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever to glorify God and to enjoy him forever and that is exactly what Paul does as he writes to the Galatians. He begins with man himself as a question, so to speak, who is being brought into question to some degree, but he immediately points to God. Now, it's helpful for us to know a little bit of the purpose of this letter. We're not going to do a complete historical background because that's not our purpose but I do think that it is helpful for us to understand that there is an issue that Paul is trying to address in this letter. And that issue is, is that there had come some teachers that had moved into the region. And by the way, Paul preached himself there in Galatia. But there were teachers that had come behind him and come behind other sound teachers that had moved into the region and had pointed people back to the works of the law as a means for salvation. So well, what does that mean for us? Well, that may mean nothing for us, but let me see if we can make a connection. Um, connection would be is if we believe today, like so many people believe, that they will get to God if they keep the Ten Commandments mostly. Okay? So if we were to do what we did 20, 25 years ago and began to knock on doors, it probably wouldn't be as common today as it was then. But then, 20, 25 years ago, when we knocked on the doors of people and we asked them, uh, how do you think that you uh, will get to heaven most of the people said, be a good person, do the best that I can, keep the Ten Commandments, be kind to people, love people, uh, try to treat my fellow man right, all of those things. And all of those things are really good things to do. We should love our neighbor. We should seek to be kind and gracious. 
Uh, we should be sensitive to others' needs. We should help people that need help. Um, I, I sought to try to help someone last night. Uh, if you ever get a chance to come up here on a Saturday evening to help set up, if you come after dark, is that nine-mile post over here? They normally, or whatever this place is over here behind us, 10-mile post, whatever it is, they normally have some really good music going on. And I, I've never been over there, so I don't know everything else that was going on, but I saw the result of at least some of what goes on over there because when I turned down the little side street, not at the stoplight, but, but the one before and came down through there, when I made it around the curve, I saw someone laying on the side of the road. Well, I, I, and then there were two people that I thought were attending, and they were such as it was. But I stopped to say, hey, is there something I can do to help? And in the course of that, they went on to, as best they could tell me, uh, in the condition that they were in, that their friend was inebriated, which um, it was clear that they were as well. He was just worse than they were because he was laid out. I said, you need to help him up and get him off of the side of the road or someone is going to run over him and run over you in the road. I said, can I help? Oh, no, we've got this. I said, are you sure? I said, yeah. I said, well, I'm going to pull across the road. And when I get over there, if you don't have him up, uh, I'm going to call you some help. And the help that I was going to call probably was not going to help them in all the ways that they wanted to be helped. Point is, is that it is just good to be loving and kind and gracious. But that kind of endeavor will never get us into the kingdom of God. And yet, so many people, even so many people in churches today, believe that it will. And so many pastors who teach and preach believe that it will by nature of what is said when talking about the things that please God. You've heard us say before that oftentimes those things are moralistic teachings to try to help people just to do better. But doing better is not what is needed. And ultimately, that was what the teachers were teaching. They were saying, keep the law, keep the practices of the law, and that will get you to God and God may help a little bit with this stuff about the gospel in Christ, but if you want to grow in holiness, and if you want to continue to be saved, you just keep doing the good things. The problem was, is that teaching had put the church in jeopardy. Now, I just encourage you over the course of the next nine weeks, just to continue to read Galatians. But I'm going to help you think through this, because I looked at the way that that hindered the church. It hindered the church's ongoing, necessary gospel ministry. You see, the gospel had been distorted. If you look in chapter 1 and look in verse 7, you'll see at the end of that, there were those who wanted to distort the gospel of Christ. In fact, it had been distorted. As much as we could distort it, it had been distorted. The gospel couldn't be changed, but it had been preached in such a way that the gospel had been distorted. Now, we need to be clear about this. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So, that means what? Now, I want you to hear this today because this is crucial for us. This is foundational. That means what? It means that there can be no salvation where there is no gospel. And Paul makes that clear. That there is only one gospel. And if you were to read the rest of chapter 1, he states that clearly. There is only one gospel. And you can't distort it. And when you begin to distort it, you no longer have the gospel. In other words, when you add something to it, you no longer have it. If you take something away from it, you no longer have it. And if you no longer have the gospel, then there is no longer salvation. Um. Some of you know we send out stuff occasionally, and even some of our literature back there comes from Nine Marks. Now, we are not Nine Marksers, and everything that Capitol Hill Baptist Church does or believes or whatever may not be something that we would believe. But we feel good enough about that ministry to point you to those materials. 
But I want to share this with you because I have found this interesting. That they believe this so strongly that even when their elders are meeting, talking about receiving people into the life of the church, the question comes up, have they been baptized? Now you would think that would be enough, but it's not for them. Were they baptized in a church that preaches the gospel? In other words, when this person said they believed, did they say they believed because they had heard the gospel? Why? Because the gospel alone is the power of God for salvation. So there is no salvation where there is no gospel. That's important for us to hear. So our point to you is, is that the reason that week after week we seek to be faithful in teaching the gospel, in hearing it from the text, in praying through those things, in singing those things, is because our hope for you, if you haven't trusted Christ, is that you would come to trust Him, but you're not going to come to trust Him if the gospel is not there if it is not present. And Paul knew this. And he defines the gospel in Galatians. If you may want to just turn to these passages real quick, we're going to read them. But I want you to hear how Paul lays out the gospel here in this letter. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, he says and writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, meaning Jesus Christ, born of a woman, points to the virgin birth, okay, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, he writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Hannah Grace, you remember that text from Friday? Okay. Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself. What's the antecedent for the pronoun who? Christ. Okay. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Galatians 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. The second thing it hindered was it hindered the believers, the true believers, a, a spiritual maturation. It hindered their sanctification. You see, the redeeming work of God through the atoning work of Christ, which brings justification, is not the sum total of the work of salvation. Did you hear that? Being justified is not the sum total of the work of salvation. It is a part of the work. It is at the front end. So when we come to trust Christ, we are justified, we are adopted, we come into the family of God, but it was never intended. Salvation is not built as that is the end, but almost that is the beginning because now once we are redeemed, there is the process of the Spirit of God. And we're going to talk about this even more detail today and in the next nine weeks. It is the work of God in us now to transform us and to conform us into the likeness of His Son. In other words, to sanctify us, to make us holy, to bring about holiness in our lives. You lose the gospel. And you lose that. It's hindered. And theirs was. Theirs was hindered. Notice in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, 
Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive spirit, the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Which, in the course of this, their turning back to the law had led them to appeal to the works of the law as a basis for their sanctification. Look in Galatians chapter 4. Look in 8 and 10, 8 through 10. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back, and this is what they had done, they had turned back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. In other words, do you want to be enslaved to these things again? Do you want to be enslaved to the law? Or do you want to try to continue to seek your salvation through what you can do after you have heard the gospel? You observe days and months and seasons and years. And then this ushered in the relational strife that came because of it. Where there is relational strife in a church, now I want you to hear this. Where there's relational strife in a church, there will be a weakened testimony and witness of the gospel in that same, in that same church. In other words, you find a church where there is relational strife in the body, and you will find a church whose mission has stopped, and who now are infighting and struggling with each other, rather than displaying and reflecting the glory of God in the world. Remember what Jesus said. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But that wasn't what was taking place in the life of this church. Look in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on to say this, and this is, not just hypothetical, it seems that this was taking place because of all that was happening there in that church. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Their witness in the world was hindered. So already I believe that you can begin to at least see a covering of what we are going to be talking about over the course of the next nine weeks. And Paul, in this letter, points to Galatians to the saving grace of Christ and not to an adherence to the law for salvation. Now, this is just a glance of the problem. So we see that the component of the foundation to reflect the glory of God in this world, in this fallen world, it's the gospel. But there's another component. And it logically precedes the gospel. You want to take a guess what it is? It's God. God precedes the gospel. So the first component of this foundation for reflecting the glory of God is God himself. Where does Paul begin? Look in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. I'm not massaging this text to make it say this. I, I won't, I'm prefacing this. I see it in the text. I want you to see it because I want you to understand the significance. Because if we don't begin to understand this component, we will not understand what is being said when we get 
to chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, hearing about the fruit of the Spirit. Paul said in verse 1 in chapter 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through who? Through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul points to the fact that his own existence, his own apostleship, came from God. Now, now he is saying it didn't come from man. A committee didn't appoint me to be an apostle. But what Paul is pointing to, he said, I'm telling you about God because God has appointed me to tell you about Him. And the authority upon which I am teaching you is my apostleship, which came directly from Him. No one appointed me to be an apostle. I am an apostle by God, the Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ, who raised Him from the dead. And then he continues, though giving testimony of the fact that his own life and his own conversion and the gospel itself had come to him not from men but from God. Look in chapter, verse 11 of chapter 1. He said, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man. So in other words, Paul could say that what I am preaching to you about salvation, your justification and your sanctification, is not a message that I received from any man. Now, it doesn't mean that it would have been bad if it had come from a man. It just means that Paul says, I want you to be crystal clear that there has been no confusion and no mistake. In fact, if there has been any mistake, it would be on the part of Christ Himself who taught me the gospel and brought the gospel to me. Now I'm looking around and I'm assuming everyone in here, uh, at least for the most part, we have heard of the Apostle Paul. But if we haven't, or if we need to be refreshed, I just encourage you to go back and read Acts chapter 8 and 9. And you'll hear about him. You'll hear about the fact that he approved of the stoning of Stephen, who was preaching the gospel, and Stephen was executed because he was preaching the gospel. The first verse of chapter 8 says, and Paul approved of this, and then it goes on to tell about Paul's continued persecution of believers. And then in chapter 9, all of that was interrupted because he was on his way to the city of Damascus to arrest some more Christians, to imprison them. And Jesus, the resurrected Lord, intervened and came and spoke to him personally brought attention to his sin and his rebellion against God, and Paul was converted. And then we read that Paul here begins with God. Everything he has to say to the Galatians is grounded in his understanding of God and theirs. Okay? He's pointing back to this is who God is. He has appointed me. He has saved me. He gave me the gospel. And then he carries them on farther. He gives them an understanding of the triunity of God. Notice what he says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. We read it a moment ago. He says, let me ask you only this. Okay? He's already talked with them about their justification. He said, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? The Gospel is foundational. Our understanding belief in, rather, that God has revealed Himself throughout Scripture in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three persons are distinct 
yet they are co-equal and co-eternal, and there is one God. Why do I mention this? That is a foundational tenet for Orthodox Christianity. In other words, we can't even bring into the equation sanctification when we look at Scripture without understanding that the sanctification comes because the Spirit resides and moves into the life of the one who places his or her faith in Christ. And it is God then who works that work of sanctification and perfection. Now we're going to deal with what the, the fruit of the Spirit means, what that means later. But this is foundational. It's foundational that we understand that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. They are co-equal. They are co-eternal. The reason that we began this morning and we prefaced everything by looking at a text in Psalms that referenced Yahweh, the triune God, is because it is God, remember, that the psalmist called on and said, Save us. Save us. When the psalmist looked to Yahweh and said, Save us, he was looking to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit saying, Save us. Help me to see your glory in your kingdom. And Jesus, when he comes back and says, and pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He's directing attention to the Father, the distinct person, but who is it that is praying and looking to him but the Son, the Son of God, who is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. Paul assumes this as he writes this letter because he understands this to be true. He did not understand it. He understood it to be true. He assumes this as he begins. We'll continue to point this out and speak of the significance of this doctrinal issue. But I wanted us to look at it and see it in Galatians before we go any farther. Or everything else that we say will be stuff that you have heard before. But it may not register with you in the way that it should. You see, to deny the doctrine that lays forth the three distinct persons of the Godhead who are co-equal and co-eternal is to deny and reject God and is clearly an attempt to create God in an image that we can believe or understand or somehow feel like that we can relate it better to others. Have you ever struggled with that? Have you ever struggled with trying to figure out how to talk about God in all His wonder and all of His glory? So then you begin to talk about God in ways that are more common with man than they are God because you feel comfortable about talking about people with other people. But you don't feel comfortable about talking about God with other people because you don't understand those things. And the whole time, we are miscommunicating and trying to create God in an image that we feel like will be more understandable. I want you to know that your pastor here does not understand the triune Godhead. But then I don't understand creation. And I don't understand a virgin birth. And I don't understand the resurrection. And I don't understand what I read about what eternity will be like. But it doesn't mean that it is not true. It is an objective reality. And therein is where our faith comes to play. I was speaking with a young man here, and I will not identify him, but I was speaking with a young man this week right here in, in, our, in, in our community here. And he told me, I believe what I know. We were talking about his faith, 
in Christ. He said, I believe what I know. He said, there are things that I don't know, but by faith I believe that. There are things that I will never know, and by faith I believe that. And I was thinking, I have never heard it put that way, but therein is faith. I trust in what I know. If God says it, I trust in what I don't know and don't understand. And I know that there are things that I'll never know about God. But if they're of God, I believe those too. What am I saying? Well, I'm saying that we are talking about things that are hard to comprehend. But there's a third component to reflect in the glory of God. And I've already mentioned it, and that is His indwelling presence. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. Notice what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6. And all of this is leading up to us again. I just want to point this. All of this is leading up to give us the foundations for understanding the next eight weeks as we parse through chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. He says, and because you are sons, listen, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your heart. You may want to underline that. We've read over it. You may have read it a hundred times. Think about that for just a moment. And because you're sons, in other words, because God has adopted you in Christ, you trusted in Him. God has adopted you. God has sent His Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of His Son, into your hearts, into your lives. Jonathan Edwards wrote, The Holy Spirit is the sum of the blessings that Christ sought by what He did and suffered in the work of His redemption. You know, that's true when you go back and read John's Gospel. Jesus was saying to His disciples, what? You don't really want me to stay here. You really need me to go do what I have to do. Because when I do what I'm getting ready to do, God is sending another like me who will indwell you. The incarnate Christ, He was incapable in His incarnation to get in me. The resurrected Christ, sending the Spirit of God, now becomes a whole other matter. And Jonathan Edwards says, that is the blessing. And all of His redemption was toward that end because He, the Spirit of God, would be the one who would come and take up residence in the lives of those who would believe. Jesus told His disciples, if you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. I find this interesting, okay, pointing toward holiness in the commandments. And I'll ask the Father, and He'll give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. We know this is true because Paul writes what? The things of the flesh are opposed to the Spirit, and the Spirit is opposed to the flesh. All right, we read that. He said, you know Him. At that time, he's, now listen to what he says. He says, you know Him for He dwells with you. And will be in you. John 14, 15 through 17. Jesus made it perfectly clear that the Holy Spirit would be in them. And not only them, but those who would believe. There are other places that we can read about the Spirit of God coming upon individuals. And in some of these cases, we can see that as a way of speaking of the Spirit's presence coming in them. But Jesus and Paul both state that the Spirit, by God's promise, takes up residence in the one who places his or her faith in Christ. 
and we're going to have more to say about this in the upcoming weeks, but for our purpose today, let's see this. And I'm going to do this by asking a question. Do you feel like you have God living in you? I don't. Do you? Do you feel like you have God living in you? I don't. But it's not a feeling. It is an objective reality that for those who believe the Spirit of God dwells in them. I've thought about that a bit. Feeling is a response to something. Okay? Feeling is a response to something, but feeling is very subjective. So for instance, the person who finds his or herself in a situation where they come to realize they are lost and they feel the heaviness of the guilt and the burden of their sin. In other words, they feel guilty and dirty and they trust Christ and they say, I feel cleansed and free. What are they saying? Is that I felt guilty and now I feel Free. I felt dirty, now I feel clean. But the feeling is only able to come because of what? Because of the objective reality of what we sang earlier, that by Christ's death and Him being our curse, we were made Free. But let me ask you this. What about the person here who is a believer who never felt the heavy burden of your guilt and your sin? Are you any less a believer if you have trusted Christ? Because if you didn't feel the heavy burden and guilt of your sin, then you probably don't walk around in some way feeling free in that same sense. But the objective reality of what God has done is no less. In the same way the, uh, that the objective reality of the gospel and how it is stated in Scripture is set. The objective reality of the triune Godhead is set. The objective reality of the indwelling of the Spirit of God is set. It's not subjective. It's real. So let's draw down on these three things in our closing. Foundational to reflecting the glory of God in a fallen world is the objective reality of the gospel. Christ died for the sins of those who would believe in Him and He rose again. The objective reality is grounded in faith in the triune Godhead. The objective reality that comes by faith in the Gospel which is objective. And the faith in the fact that God indwells or takes up residence in those who trust Him. Those are hard, fast truths. Maybe stirs emotion in you. I don't know. But whether it does or whether it doesn't is not the point. Do you get that? 
boys and girls, that's not the point. Moms and dads, it's not the point of whether it stirs some kind of an emotion in you. The point is, do you believe and trust those things? If the answer is yes, then everything else that we will talk about for the next eight weeks and talking about how we live distinctively in the world because the Spirit of God dwells in us and we will look at who He is and what that necessarily means because He is in us, it'll make sense and it'll help us. But first, first, we have to ask, do I trust in, believe in, the triune God, His gospel, and the fact that He lives in those who believe. Which means if I trust in Him, He'll live in me too. Would you pray with me? Father, straightforward for sure, objective, Because even as you have said, though we have not seen Him, we love Him. Thank you, Father, that you are the object of our faith. And that your realness, your presence, your person is objective. And you have shown yourself to us in the person of Christ the image of the invisible God. And there is no feeling Accept the feelings that well up in our heart because you have been merciful and gracious to all of us by not striking us down and destroying us. And you have spoken to our hearts and are speaking to hearts even today to trust you. Help us, Father, as we do. In Jesus' name, amen.